Thank you, Jen. Appreciate it. Good morning, Mount Helena. How are you today? Really glad that you're here. Uh, I have a you know a loose definition that the junkies, the church junkies, the junkie Jesus followers are the ones who keep coming to first service after the 4th of July to September. So right now you're on week one, you're doing well. I'm really glad that you're here at uh, first service. Isn't that true though? As summer goes on, it gets harder to get up in the morning after all the late nights, after it finally cools off. Am I the only one? You're looking at me a little strange. It's hard for me to get up in the morning then anyway, after, after late nights and it, it uh, cooling down. Uh, I want to uh, thank Corey Swanson for the series uh, that he did the last two weeks about Christian freedom and uh, the theology, and I heard from several of you uh, about his explanation of sanctification and how that stuck out to you and how you appreciated what uh, he shared about justification and sanctification and how we don't need to be working for our salvation, that it's actually a work that's been done for us, and yet it doesn't free us from a sanctification process. I want to continue in that series that he is called Christian Freedom and a look at what is freedom for a Christ follower. I want to pick up where he left off, but before we do that, I, I would just like to take a moment to pray together. Can we do that? Great. Father, we come before you. I thank you for this great group, this community that we belong to. I thank you for spiritual family that we can come together and, and worship you and open up your word and dig into your words for us, your love for us, your heartbeat for us. God, I welcome you and we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us and to lead us this morning in your word and to lead us in the life that you desire for us. God, we have our own thoughts. We have our creativity. We have our dreams and our goals. We have our memes. We have our commitments on social media. And yet, God, it all pairs in pale comparison to what you have for us. Your word says that we can't imagine what you have for us. And this morning, God, we want to tune in to what you have and what you want for our lives this morning. So we focus our attention on you and ask that you speak to us, each one of us individually, and us as a spiritual family. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Thanks for praying with me. Uh, so I, again, I very much appreciate the series that Corey brought us, and I want to continue in that this morning. And I, I felt for him last week, uh, near the end of his message, when he made it to Galatians chapter 5. Some really good stuff in there. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Galatians chapter 5. And I felt like Corey was just getting to the great stuff. And so as I was getting ready to preach this week and coming up, and uh, as he wrapped up last week, I was like, I, I have to take on the rest of that because the best stuff still remains. So we're in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 13, we're going to do the second half of the chapter this morning. In verse 13, Paul writes, saying, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. 
Verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. With this paragraph, Paul's making uh, a change. He's making a shift. He's making an adjustment where Corey has brought great theology to us the last two weeks. And Paul has written in that way. He's, he's spoken with some of the greats. And he's developed theology. But one of the best parts of Paul is he couldn't just speak with the intellects. He could also just bring it right down to real life. And so he, in this paragraph, makes a change in his emphasis. Up to this point, his argument, his plea, his case, his message has been very theological. And now it becomes intensely ethical and practical. And what does it look like in our daily living? Great, there's this great definition, this great description of sanctification and justification and the importance of it is that there is a great difference. And yet it doesn't matter if it doesn't apply, if it can't be lived out, if it has no connection to our daily living. Paul had an intellectual mind and he had a practical mind. He could speak with the most intellect of the Greek and he could speak in their words and their terminology, he could intrigue the deepest part of their brains, and yet he could build a track. He could write it in a way that just speaks right to the common man's heart and says, here's the things that you need to do to line up with that. Here's how your daily living can change and line up with God's plan for your life. Vincent Taylor is the one who once said, the test of a good theologian is, can he write a tract? Can he write something that the common man can understand, not just those who are into the word and into the deep roots and the intellect of it all, the philosophy of it all and the effect, the potential effect it can have on society. But what about the man who wants a change and has given his life to Christ to make a difference. Paul's writings do satisfy that test. In Romans, one of his greatest works and greatest rights, he makes this shift that he's making in this paragraph as well. For 11 chapters, Paul's appealing to the theological, the intellectual the upper echelon of thinkers. And in chapter 12 of Romans, he shifts, doesn't he? And he becomes very practical, very ethical, trying to change the way we live. He said, you can do all these things and the summation of it could be a sounding gong if you do not have love. If it's not extremely practical, extremely reasonable and yet hard to attain all the time if you're not doing it out of love. His theology ran 
a danger. And it's why he couldn't just stay in the theological. As he's talked about grace as, as Corey described these last couple weeks. He points out the danger of grace is that we excuse the law. We say, we believe what Paul's saying, hook, line, and sinker, and we believe that the law doesn't exist anymore. It's undone because grace has arrived. Because grace has arrived, and the danger in that then is if grace has arrived, then I can do whatever I feel like doing, right? And yet Paul believes that we all have two obligations. There was two obligations inside of Paul and one of which he's not focused on right here in this text, but he is in plenty other parts of his writing is that, but we have an obligation to God. But if God gave his life for me, but if God gave his life in his one and only perfect son, Jesus Christ, that I would have grace that I would be set free from a law that I could not fulfill and overcome a separation from God that I could not undo myself. If Jesus did that for me, then don't I have an obligation to him? It's a freedom, all right. But it's not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom not to sin. It's not a freedom to just walk in the assurance and the certainty of God's grace that I do whatever I feel like doing and I let my flesh take over and do whatever I feel like. But Paul's saying here, it's a freedom that we can walk by the Spirit of God, the living God, that we would have such a freedom that sin would be so far removed from us that the condemnation, the effects of sin, the separation from God would be totally destroyed because now the Holy Spirit is resident in me. Wow. Then Christian freedom cannot be a license. It's not a license to sin, as I said, but it's a freedom to be free from sin. And it's a freedom to not sin. Paul closes that part, that little part of scripture. I'm sorry, I skipped the other obligation, didn't I? In that paragraph, in that small little part, he says, number two, then in fact, if grace is real and we're, the law has been lifted from us, then we have a second obligation. And that's his major point in this second half of the chapter. It's an obligation not just to God, but to one another. That we have an obligation to one another because of what God did for me. Then don't I have some sort of supply for my brother? Don't I have some sort of obligation to my sister and to my neighbor and to my friend, to my coworker, to my own family because of the grace shown by God's own son, Jesus Christ, towards me? And that's what he chooses to major on. And so he finishes this little portion there in verse 16 with a little bit of a warning, 
a little bit of advice when he says, but if you snap at one another, another version says, but if you snap at one another and devour one another, you must watch that you do not end up wiping each other out. Interesting. You have an obligation to one another to love one another as yourself. And yet, if you continue snapping at one another, you have to be careful that you don't devour one another. He's saying unless you solve the problem of living together, you will continue to make life impossible. He's saying selfishness in the end does not exalt a man, but it destroys mankind. If you continue allowing yourself to snap and to devour, to bite and to snip, to become impatient with one another, then you're going to not just devour yourself and your need for self-exaltation, your own selfishness, your own ambitions, but you're going to destroy not just yourself, but one another. I had a semi-conscious moment like this recently when just on the 4th of July, I was trying to get my family piled into the car and we were going out to the Zinn Ranch to watch fireworks out there. And I had my youngest one, Lillian, right here underneath my elbow. We're all tied into the truck to drive out to the ranch. And Lillian is just loaded with excitement and is pumped. It's the 4th of July and dad has forgotten it's the 4th of July. And a seven-year-old would actually get pumped about that. And her three siblings are in the back seat and she's wanting to continue to turn around and talk to them, but talk to them as if they're like four trucks back right here while dad's trying to drive, right? And dad just snaps and loses it for a second. He's like, Lillian, turn around, stop. And I just snap, not just in my words, but more in my spirit and my tone and how I was addressing her and just quickly and softly, credit to my wife, she says, she's, she's just excited I'm telling you that hurt. It wouldn't always hurt. There's times that it wouldn't even register. But in, a, in that moment, I was like, of course, right. She's just excited. And I'm just wanting her to face forward, be quiet, not be messing around with her three siblings in the back seat. I just want her to behave, make it easy on dad to drive out, right? But he's saying, be careful. Be careful. So was my wife, by the way. And I was glad to pick up on that. We are headed out this afternoon, actually, to spend a couple of days with one another and spend time together. And how many of you know, especially you parents know, that leading up to some vacation time can be some of the most testing and trying time, especially of kids' abilities to listen to the 25 things that I just told them to do in my message that I just gave them to be able to be ready to go as soon as we get done after church today. 25 points. Okay, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I gave them 35 probably. Right? And I only told them 10 times. Okay, maybe five times. But I expect them to listen and to be on task and we gotta be ready to go. And it's moments like this, every once in a while, I don't know about you, I presume God speaks to you 
this way as well. Every once in a while, I get myself worked up, and I'm, I'm really focused on what I think needs to be done and what needs to be accomplished, and I may get to barking orders and this, that, or another thing, and every once in a while, do you hear something like this? Something like the Holy Spirit speaking into your life and saying, you're proud. What, God? What did you just say? Jason, you're proud. God, I'm not proud, am I? Red flag. Red flag. If the Holy Spirit's saying you're proud, you probably are. (laughs) But we want to defend ourselves, don't we? It's times like that that I hear the Holy Spirit saying, you need to ask for forgiveness. And it's times like that that my pride really comes out because I, I I, there's all these things that's got to happen and I got to keep going and now I'm okay. I get it. I'm proud. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm going to calm down. I'm going to control myself, right? No, that hasn't taken care of it. As a parent, it's not just my responsibility to help teach my kids how to forgive. It's not just my responsibility which many of us parents believe is one of our responsibilities is to teach our kids that they need to ask for forgiveness and that they need to be people who forgive. But one of my jobs is actually to ask my kids for forgiveness. One of my responsibilities as a leader, as a father of my family is to ask my family for forgiveness for my own soul. Oftentimes we're so focused on them and the needs and what we need to accomplish and the to-do lists that we've made that we forget our kids are actually important and crucial to my own discipleship process, isn't it? They're crucial to the discipleship of my own soul. They're there for God to be able to confront me about my own attitude, my own stubbornness, my own my own unwillingness to ask for forgiveness or to face my own pride. And yet Holy Spirit is faithful. He's there. He meets us. What point am I trying to make here? My point is that at times I have poor communication. At times, I have insufficient leadership. At times, I forget about their excitement, and I'm focused on my frustrations. My point is that I have weaknesses. I have insufficiencies. And in myself, even my own fathering, I don't have enough. I don't have enough skills I haven't received enough to be able to do it in the way that even my kids or my wife need me to do it. Proverbs 21.2 says this, a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. He's a shepherd and he wants to lead us. He's not a taskmaster father who wants to drive us and to beat us into the direction and put up 
guards just to get, make sure and ensure that we go this direction. He's a shepherd that says, come and follow me. He's a shepherd who wants to lead us in the way that is good for us. I want to ask you this morning, what's leading you? What is leading you? What's driving you? The world wants to drive you. The world puts up signs and billboards and dom- tries to dominate your computer screen with pop-ups here, there, everywhere. They want to track what you're looking at because they want to get inside of you. They want access and they want to drive you And yet God is contrary. He's there waiting, saying, follow me. He wants to lead us like a shepherd. Like I said, we're headed out this afternoon. And I I want to lead my kids like a shepherd in these couple of days off. I want to spend time with them like a shepherd enjoys and spends time with his flock. What's leading you? Walking in the Spirit is asking ourselves, what's leading me? Paul's concerned about our answer to this very question. And he has his position. He's sharing his perspective. And he's letting us know what needs to be number one. And that's walking with the Spirit. That's being led by the Spirit. That's walking in the Holy Spirit. In order to do that, Number one, we need to recognize who or what is leading us. Every one of us is led by something or someone. Bob Dylan has a famous song that says, you got to serve someone. Anybody remember it? All right, great. You got to serve someone. Even in this room, there's varying degrees of us, let's be honest, who know what's leading us. Not all of us in this room can even answer that question. Who or what is leading me right now? Let me ask a different question. Why do you think we bite and crab at one another? Why do we devour and snip? Why do we lose it sometimes towards those that we love the most? Paul continues in Galatians 5.16 saying, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul was very conscious of that nature that's inside of us, the two sides, the tension that's in our human nature. As an old poem states, saying, I'm a man and a man's a mixture, right down from his very birth. For part of him comes from heaven and part of him comes from earth. Are you aware of that tension inside of you? It's true of you. Paul's prescription indicates, Paul's belief indicates 
that he believes it's because we're not living or walking out in the spirit a rule of love. It had been summed up before by his leader, by Paul's leader. The Ten Commandments, which were impossible, it's saying, for anybody to follow, to fully walk out. Jesus dumbs it down, simplifies it to two. And yet Paul's going even further, saying, really, it's one. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a rule of love. In that sense, the gospel is that as well. It's God loving you so you can love others. The whole of the gospel is God loving me so I can love others like God loves me. The rule of love. Paul, earlier in the chapter, shared a huge thought that I do want to look at again in Galatians, just up above verse six. If the pen's mightier than the sword, then Paul has a whopper of a pen here. In verse six, the second half, the second sentence of verse six, Galatians chapter five says this. Read this with me. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We did that this last fall together in the 40 days in the word, right? That's a method. Each one of those words that make up that verse carry a lot of weight like happens in the rest of this chapter with the two lists that Paul's about to share with us. But that is a whopper of a statement, isn't it? The only thing that counts for you and I, for all of us, is not just faith. It's not just faith, despite what we may hear in some messages. Paul's saying, no, it's faith expressing itself in the rule of love to the point that we love our neighbor as ourself, to the point that we've received God's love, it's thoroughly saturated us to, point, to the point that we can thoroughly love on others the way God loves them, not the way my nature, my flesh thinks it's okay to love them. <laughs> it's not satisfactory. I have a couple of pieces of paper here and an illustration for you. This piece of paper represents your and I's life, a, a life. And in the illustration, this is you and this is me. And to show part of our depletion and what happens to us is, for example, 
You may hear from a neighbor and they may, may need something of you and that's totally fine with you. You're glad to help them, but it does take something of you to be able to do that. And then you may hear from your spouse or your roommate or from a friend and they need something of you. And it does take something more of you. Ooh, that's a little bit more than I was thinking. Isn't that how it works? And then you may hear from a coworker who really needs you to listen. And it's not as easy as you thought it would be to make yourself available to them. All of a sudden, after a while, we are really feeling depleted. And we're thinking, what about me? No, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm saving this for me. Me, me, me. Right? And we become depleted in our love because love takes faith. Great love takes faith. You can't do it on your own. Not even with your spouse, not even with your perfect kids. We need more than ourselves. The Holy Spirit is meant to help replenish us and help build us back in his love and his commitment, his solid commitment of love to me is meant to fill my tank. It's meant to replenish and to restore that part of me that's been taken away, that's been offered up, that's been giving to others and made me feel uncomfortable and protective of this last part that I need. It's gotta be replenished. And in walking in the spirit, the spirit is committed to replenish us, to refuel us, to remind us again, over and over and over again, of God's commitment of love to us, that we wouldn't be able to just stop by thinking of ourselves and not continue. Let's face it. I think you would agree with me, some of us, are a whole bigger sheet of paper, aren't we? Some of you have a greater capacity than most. But the list that we're about to see that Paul gives is what makes that piece of paper bigger and bigger. Some of you are poster size, right? You have a lot to give in these areas that Paul's leading us in. But what does replenishment look like? Number two, it begins with a repositioning. What leads you? What's leading or driving you? And what would it take for you to reposition yourself? The New Living Translation says this in verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. It's a letting, it's a repositioning. Verse 25, which we're going to read here in a little bit, says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There's a letting, there's a repositioning, there's a coming underneath, there's an allowing. To Corey's great point, despite 
what Christian freedom can sometimes be portrayed as. A Christ-following freedom is far more surrender than it is revolt. It's far more of a surrendering to the Holy Spirit and to God's Spirit and His leading, His guiding, His desiring to father us and to shepherd us, to lead us to greener pastures. Even when it means leading us further into surrender. When I think of that verse 25, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I can't help but think of my younger days in an arena and Omoxian and the sack race that we used to do. And I remember starting out, it was typically for the eight and under age groups, right? And how difficult to do a sack race with another five or a six-year-old kid and be in step, right? But it actually takes, it did for me at least, listening to my dad and hearing my dad saying, only one of you can lead. The other one's going to have to follow. And one of the ways you can do that is for one of you to just say one, two, one, two, one, two, and you step together. It doesn't matter if it's a rope or a sack. You don't have to have anything. You can be in step with one another. And I remember that's how we started doing the sack race, just shouting out, going down the the lane in the arena, one, two, one, two, one, two, and how easy that it made. But actually when you did that with someone for very long, all of a sudden you didn't have to say one, two, one, two anymore. Nobody had to say it for you. My dad didn't have to say, we were just in step with one another and we could run almost any distance the rest of our body could because of that, that togetherness. The repositioning begins with the desire to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in our life. You've heard, I'm confident you've heard of the practice of medicine, right? And how doctors practice medicine. Similarly so, the life of a Christian and walking in the Spirit is similar. It's a practice. It's nothing that any of us perfect ever, is it? As confident as I can be, as many experiences as I can have, missions, trips, church services, podcasts, memes in my feed, posts that I make on my social media, my walk in the Holy Spirit has to be maintained and experienced. And every once in a while, I still have to go back to one, two, one, two, one, two, to get back in sync and in step with the Holy Spirit. Let me read the list to you that he finishes the chapter out with. I'd love to get stuck on some of these words because I've learned a lot the last two weeks about some of these words. Some of you I've shared some of it with and there's no way I thought that I would have time for any of that, but I want, do want to share the list. In verse 19 it says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, 
and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not fun to read before you. Do you know that? (laughs) But it's also not fun to skip the parts that Paul's really writing to us and to them to show us what's going on in our life and to help us be able to answer the question, what am I following? Who is leading me? What is driving me? How bad do I need to be repositioned? But in verse 22, he has another short list that says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience. You've probably heard this list more oftentimes than you heard that previous list. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things because it's unnecessary. There's no point. There's no point. Who would want to regulate those things? Too much kindness? It's that country song. It's like a girl too pretty, a car too fast, too much money. It's nonsense. Too much patience? The only time we think we've met someone that's too patient is when we're comparing our impatience with theirs, right? Wow, that person's a saint. They make me uncomfortable because they love so much, because they're so kind. They're so generous. That's the work of the Spirit in our life. You know how you get from one list to the other? Surrender. Practice. By walking with the Spirit. Lastly, is to rely on God's Spirit. Let me ask you the question, why the Holy Spirit then? The Holy Spirit is the third part of God. We don't serve three gods. Many of us in this room would say that we we have a relationship, we have an understanding, we have connection with Jesus Christ, we have an understanding of him. And yet, how does that compare with the Holy Spirit? We don't serve three gods, we serve a God who is three. God the Father, God the Son who is Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. You can't follow Jesus Christ of the Bible and not walk with the Spirit. You cannot understand the words of the Bible. You cannot interpret the words. You cannot receive the love that God has for you in here without the Holy Spirit. You can't serve God adequately. You can't live a godly life without the Holy Spirit. You can do none of these things apart from the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Jesus said, I have to go. And it sounded more like, almost like right now. Because if you will, it's much better for you that I go that I could send the helper, that I could send the one that you really need from here forward. That's still true today, isn't it? That is still 
true today. We need the Holy Spirit. Paul believed this, that the Christ follower experienced a death with Christ. That the Christ follower experienced a death with Christ and that they rose again to life, becoming new and becoming clean, where the evil things that once controlled and overweighed the flesh, that drove the flesh, actually became lovely things. Because the Spirit brings them to fruition, to life inside of us. Paul believed that's something that really happens to Christ followers, and it's the same today. I'm confident he'd still stand before us today and tell us that's what he believes, that we die a death and we come to a life where that old list dies in us by walking with the Spirit and that the Spirit brings to life a person who is extremely impatient. Not that he couldn't become impatient again, but that the Spirit brings about patience in someone who is so impatient. What does that look like? It's praying. It's asking God. It's repositioning ourselves. It's being able to be honest with ourselves when we look in the mirror and say, who's leading me right now? Jason, too much of you. Not enough of God. (laughs) God, Holy Spirit, I need your leadership in my life. I reposition myself, my parenting, my fathering, the leadership of my business and my coworkers, the responsibilities that I have. God, I want to be led by you. And so God, right now I just remove myself from my world, my throne, and I want to yield to you. Will you teach me how to be more patient? Will you teach me how to be more understanding? How to be and express and bring to fruit kindness and goodness, generosity and gentleness in my life. If you would like to pray with someone this morning, the prayer team will be available over here to the side. But likewise, if you came with someone this morning, you have questions, you want to, you may know somebody else in this room that you share a faith with. If you have questions, I know that they'd be willing to talk with you and share what they know and help connect you to other people that they may know that maybe could answer your questions. I encourage you to have the courage to ask questions and to engage God and to engage your faith with one another. Don't park it. Don't subdue it. Don't just keep thinking you can control yourself. Surrender yourself. Amen?